I was doing mostly for restaurants, they weren't letting me do everything. It was like, hey, we have a table that needs to get fixed. I was like, okay, sure, I'll fix it. Yeah. Or like, hey, we have these tables that were built. Can you just sand and refinish these? We don't want to buy new tables. And I'm like, sure, I'll build whatever you want. Uh, and I was just, you know, I was came from the business perspective of like, make the client happy, get in with them, and then when they need something, you'll be the guy they call. You're listening to Folk Tales, a show about people doing old things in new ways, and sometimes new things in old ways. Every episode, we'll talk with a different entrepreneur, artisan, or founder, and hear about their story, their craft, and what inspires them. These are stories of people going against the grain of big industries by working on a small, local scale. And for our first season, all of our guests are from Nashville, Tennessee. My name is Brian Mochizuki, and our guest today is Ethan Kiyoshi Summers, the founder of Oil & Lumber, an apparel and furniture design label that makes everything by hand in their Nashville workshop. Eight years ago, Ethan found himself in a similar position to a lot of entrepreneurs, leaving a safe, successful 9-to-5 career to pursue his dream. Only in Ethan's case, he wasn't starting one business, but two. I would say the furniture is kind of how it started. Um, I, I kind of grew up with my hands always, whether I was fixing like a motorcycle or like a weed eater or a lawnmower, I just always liked working with my hands. And um, there were, I took shop class in middle school and high school. So there was woodworking classes. And I mean, we were just die cutting random, a deer cut out of wood and stuff. So I was doing like the birdhouse classes you see on TV. That's essentially, I took that. I did take home ec though, but I would say I naturally leaned towards the furniture in the beginning because I felt really comfortable doing it. The clothing was something that I had a little experience because I knew how to sew at a basic level. My mom taught me kind of growing up. I feel like that generation, especially Japanese, um, side of things, they all were very resourceful with sewing. When I was younger, making GI Joe, uh, little like, uh, sandbags miniature ones totally she was showing me showing me how to do that and i thought that was so cool so i would say i leaned more towards the furniture in the beginning which kind of in turn uh, led me to somewhat of a of an eye for for garments which i've always been interested in clothing i just didn't know i could have a clothing brand so what i tended to do is is just started to dip my toe and learn a little bit more and realizing i always tell myself when it's something that seems uh, a little intimidating most people say how did you like, how did you, this must be so intimidating to start clothing. Like, how did you just like, you didn't go to fashion school or Parsons or any of these other, you know, esteemed schools. And I was like, well, a lot of other people have done this before me that probably uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of people have done this. Like what's to stop me. So, uh, and my approach to it is like, let's just learn. Let's just, let's self teach as much as we can, but also ask people that know what they're doing. So yeah, I would say the furniture kind of was the first thing that I took to, but now they're a balance. If you had to ask what our revenue is, it's split down the middle, yeah. like almost to a T. It's cr- kind of crazy. So, and it depends on the year and the projects. But for the most part, our goal is to like really have both of those drive the company from both aspects. I think if someone, I mean, you know, business people behind the scenes will ask you, well, what if one took off? Would you just kill the other? I was like, well, there's not really one without the other anymore. I never really started this company to be like a CEO or to to grow it and scale, you know, quote unquote scale it. I think most young entrepreneurs start companies nowadays to grow it, do all the things to get to the point where they have like a large company, they could sell it, they're being integrated with tech. I, I really started this as an artist passion to pursue things with my hands and to be more hands-on with items. We make everything in-house from the ground up. It's funny that you say that a clothing business would be intimidating because I think most people would say a front, like many people have started clothing businesses without knowing sure. what they're doing. And I don't think anyone's ever started a furniture business without <laughs> That's true. A pretty good. That's true. I guess most people that have no 
it just didn't seem as intimidating to me because I wasn't afraid of like picking up a power tool or a hand tool. It uh, doesn't mean I was purposely trained in it. I just was never afraid of it. Versus if you if you put a commercial sewing machine in front of me, I'm like, I don't know how that works. I don't even know like how to thread that through this bobbin. Like it looks so intimidating. If the furniture I jumped right in and was trying to learn and catch up, I had a vision in my head, but my skill set wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, the clothing the same way, except way bigger learning gap. I had a vision for what I wanted to make garment wise, but I couldn't construct something uh, that intricate, you know, like a jacket, a classic chore jacket or something else. Yeah. Uh, I just, I didn't have the skill set, but I knew I wanted to get there. So I just started little by little. And that's why I didn't want to grow super fast in the beginning because I don't think my skill set was there yet. When you were in the corporate world, sure, so to speak, yeah, were you were you like nights and weekends like making chairs and like yeah, yeah. those skills? Uh, I mean, I was moonlighting for sure. Um, when I was working in the corporate world, I was working all day and then at night I would come home and kind of flip the switch and be creative. So I was screen printing on t-shirts. I was modifying items from thrift stores. Uh, that's really kind of how I how I wanted to make an identity that was different. I'm also half Japanese, so I'm short, have like a weird body type. Like most other people in the world, not everything fits in the way that it looks like on online. So I, I started modifying garments and then people started saying, I like that, or I like that, or I'd out of pocket something. and. That's what kind of sparked it to me. I was just making stuff on my own time. And that's kind of, I, I had projects when I left my corporate job because I was doing so much at night that I had probably 10 or 11 projects for people that were like, I want a dining room table. I want a chair. Oh, I want a, I want a shelf. Uh, but to be honest, at first I'd build anything. I, was, I wasn't picky. I was grateful for the chance to make stuff for people. I think that was just exciting that people would want to pay me to make something for them. That's, as an artist, that's like what you dream for, I think. How did you find your first customers? Uh, a lot of them are just friends. I mean, they're still that way. It's just friends of friends. I mean, uh, people always ask like what our marketing plan is for the furniture. And to be honest, it just like is word of mouth. So um, b being in Nashville is a huge part, I think, as well. The co creative community is, is so tight knit that when you do a good project or work on something really neat, people want to share that. They want to share it with their friends. So, yeah, first customers were friends. Um and just people that I knew that wanted to take a chance on me. And some of the my current clients are people that were my first clients that now have like seen me grow. Uh, a lot of them are frustrated because our, our prices have fluctuated over the years so much that they're like, wow, that's like five times more. And I'm like, well, my skill's a lot better. And honestly, I was way undercharging back then. And yeah, so like it's just caught up. But yeah, so my first clients were just uh, my friends and family really that were just willing. They wanted to support me, but also they really needed stuff. And I think there was a gap, especially at this time, for like uniquely made furniture items. And that's kind of where we stepped in and we're like, yeah, we can make that. I can make that for you. You just want it three inches narrower, for sure. Do you remember the day when you when you said like, I'm going to quit the nine to five life and pursue this 100%? Yeah, I mean, I, there was a day where, there were moments where I thought, man, this really isn't the job forever for me at my corporate job. I was learning a ton there from a, from a business perspective, you know, from a negotiating, from a, a how to handle clients and how to work with people from big business. That was super great. Uh, I, I mean, if I could go back, I would do that job again because I learned so much. I think that it it's hindsight, you know, if, if I wouldn't have done it and started my business, I'm like, we could have been so much farther ahead. But I learned so much there that I who knows if it led me here. So, yeah, there was a moment I remember I, I left around – October, November of, of uh, 2014. And I just remember in the middle of the summer being like, okay, I know I'm not going to be here. I need to start giving projects. I need to start figuring out like a space. I need to start 
taking more coffees with people and filling out the creative community here in town. Yeah. Um, so every every morning before work, I would either get a coffee with somebody that I thought I, I aspired to be, looked up to, saw was doing cool stuff in town, and then lunches and after work. And I was just trying to fill out the community before like I made that official jump. And I also had clients. Um, I managed to book a business at my old job that was I was managing some of the companies, so I didn't want to. I didn't want to let them down and leave them high and dry. So I was sort of figuring out like when would be a good time to exit, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, there was a moment where I was like, man, I know I can make this a business. I need to find those clients. I need to make sure the community's here because I thought maybe we move. You know, uh, I wasn't married at the time, but I was like, maybe, maybe I move to LA or New York and get engulfed in like a creative community there because everyone knows if you're working on design, those are the places to go to um but then i started to find that nashville was this was the place that i think spoke to me so much um it was a place that i was familiar with because i lived there at the point now for about six years almost seven years so i i purposely stayed here as a business decision as well as like a family because my wife's family's all here uh, so it was kind of one of those things that all worked out. But yeah, there, was, there wasn't there was like a day where I was like, I'm leaving. I got up, put my two weeks in. But it was something that I remember the day I was, I planned it. I had like a four or five month ahead of time mental processing and figuring out like ways to exit. The first year that you were in business full time, what, yeah. what was that like? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I think so in that 2014, I... I basically was working 40 hours a week with a oil number, but I was bartending to basically subsidize. I thought I had enough money for a year for business. Like everyone tells you 12 to 18 months, make sure you have that money set aside. I thought I had that. I went through it like in four months. Um, and it wasn't because I was being a bad business manager. I just, I didn't understand how much I like tools I needed and just expenses of things that you're like, oh, I need to invest in this. And I need to not buy the cheap tool. I need to buy the one that I'm going to like investing in really good tools and products was what I was hoping for. And that wasn't even marketing. That was just all production. That's like, expenses. hey, I need a sander. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, no marketing. It was like, Hey, I need a sander. Hey, I'm, I was working out of a co-working space in town called Fort Houston. Um, that was like a, I mean, th those were when they were at their peak, you know, all these creative, uh, almost like the well, what's it called? Like we work, but for, for makers. So yeah. there were, I, I know about 10 across the country at the time that were just booming and Fort Houston allowed me to like not have to buy all the equipment because they actually supply that for you for the most part, the major equipment, but I needed drills. I needed hand tools. I needed all this stuff that I had cheap versions of, but when you're doing it for a client, you're like, I need to buy this. I need to buy this. Um, so, and I also strategically wanted to have a better community. So I started to look towards like, well, a lot of the creative people are in the restaurant world. So if I get in there, my goal was to work with restaurants and to be able to design and build stuff for service hospitality groups. So I was like, I just need to work at a restaurant and get a feel for what people want. Um, at the time, my my now partner and wife was working at a restaurant and she's like, hey, you, I could probably get you a job as a busser. And you can just like basically work all day on your stuff and at night you just bust tables. Maybe you can bartend or serve down the road. I was like, cool. So, and I was young, uh, I'm, still, I'm still young, but at the time I was like in my 20s. So I was like, yeah, I'll have like fun people to hang out with creative people to hang out with at yeah. night. I can go out and get drinks. I can, you know, and I'm like, I love working hard. So being in a restaurant is like, you're just moving all the time. So it was great. Uh, and I was also making money. So I was able to like take, all, I was able to bootstrap all of my income from the 40 hours a week doing oil number back into the business. So buying more tools, buying more of this, I didn't have to draw an income from it really up until like COVID. I was still bootstrapping up until COVID hit. And, and there's struggles. Yes. Oh my gosh. Struggles all the time. I think 
I think uh, running a small business like ours, at least I can speak for myself. It's a series of leaps. Everyone says like, you know, you got to take that big leap and start the business. And I'm like, it's a series of leaps. It's like hiring your first employee, firing your first employee, liability insurance, like all that stuff is like, it's just learning curves that you're like, oh, they didn't teach you this in school. Going through your first legal issue, hiring a lawyer. It's like, so all those things, I think those are challenges that didn't happen maybe in one year, but every day was a new challenge. I think how to run, I thought I was ready to run a business, but really when it comes down to it, I don't think anyone's truly ready to run a business. I think you just figure it out and I'm a good problem solver. So I felt like the challenges I don't really get intimidated by. I'm like, I'm good at managing stress. Uh, whether or not that's a, a good or bad thing, I can manage stress very well, which in the beginning was great for me because I didn't, it didn't slow me down when things seemed a little intense. These are these Japanese crate chairs I'm building for them. They're supposed to it's like uh, street food in Japan. Now they use like the beer crates for everything. Do you remember your first time that you felt like really proud of kind of where you had come so far after taking that big leap? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that took a long time. Like that took years. I mean, even I was doing mostly for restaurants. They weren't letting me do everything. It was like, hey, we have a table that needs to get fixed. I was like, okay, sure, I'll fix it. Yeah. Or like, hey, we have these tables that were built. Can you just sand and refinish these? We don't want to buy new tables. And I'm like, sure, I'll build whatever you want. Uh, and I was just, you know, I was came from the business perspective of like, make the client happy, get in with them. And then when they need something, you'll be the guy they call, which now has is working out. So in the beginning, I mean, it was like, I was just excited that people were still willing to pay me. And then I was excited with the fact that these were like certain level clients. So I was working with like Burger Up in as the restaurant I, I bartended at and, and bust at before that. They were asking me to build like, hey, can you build a, an outside bench? Um, and there were clients all over the place. I mean, hotels that are in town here that were like, hey, can you build us a side table? I was like, one side table? Amazing. I was a yes man in the beginning, you know, get the business, then funnel it out. 2017, 2018 started to get a little more selective started to say no to projects I didn't think aligned with our look. And then 2018 was like, hey, I'm gonna have a mood board for us and like a branding guide. And if the projects don't fit within that and don't like, if it's reclaimed Barnwood, we're not even gonna like have a conversation. Yeah. And that's just being disciplined. And the business person in me that makes me nervous cause I'm like, I never wanna say we're not gonna do it because what if we need the revenue to like survive? Uh, but it seemed like once we made that call, projects that we liked and, and wanted to do started coming in a lot more. Uh, so we were fortunate that way. Probably the most recent one is like, we did some stuff with Patagonia when they opened the store here. Uh, we worked with their national accounts, uh, president of retail, which they were an amazing company to work with. They were as genuine as it looks like they are trying to be. All the employees were amazing. Everyone was so awesome. So I worked with them on some design furniture design for their location down here in Nashville. But then I did a few other items for Denver and Boston and some other stores that they they really wanted to integrate handmade items, which to me was exciting. So yeah, there's, I mean, gosh, I can go through a list of things. I mean, there's hundreds of clients we've worked with now, everything from big companies to small companies, and they all excite me. But now it's like, I'd probably say Audrey, this the most recent restaurant we worked on was the first time that it was like, I can, if I could pick exactly what I want to build, everything for a whole entire space, it was like, yes. Um, there's other projects to work on that I get to do like, hey, you're doing the chairs or you're doing the benches. Um, but we normally, we're not really built to do hundreds of units. That's not really our, we wanna be the conversational piece. So if yeah. you go into a restaurant, you go into a hotel, like who built that one piece? Um, and to be honest, we focused a little more residential. Like I've been trying to 
grapple with, like, do we keep doing these commercial projects? And really during COVID, we had a big, um, my wife and I had a big conversation in our creative team and just said, you know, where do we want to be in 20 years? Like, what do I want to be known as? I know we, we touched base about Nakashima and just like that level. And it's like, well, I want to be in conversations like that eventually. Like maybe not, obviously that's a, a lofty goal, but I want to be someone that, that people maybe are collecting our items and, and think they're amazing. So our goal is to have two to three really cool commercial projects a year mixed with residential as the majority. Because in the residential side, I can build and design what I want. People will purchase it. Like you want to buy one of my tables, go to our website. We can customize it a little bit, but that's like what we do. Uh, versus a restaurant, it's a new design every single time. It's a new entire thing, which they have to either bend to our design a little bit or we have to bend to theirs. And usually it's a medium. It's hard to say exactly that moment when we were like, wow, this is amazing. But there, I would say over the last two to three years, we've really, it's the first time I can wake up and come here and be like, wow, everything we're doing is exactly what I want to do. There might be a project here and there that we do that's like, well, we're just helping someone. But for the most part, everything we're doing, I'm really excited about. And was the was the Japanese influence, obviously personally, that has mm. been part of your life, but was that was that there in 2014? Or is that something that has kind of grown a little bit alongside the business and now you're when you codified it in 2018, that's when you officially said this is going to be a Japanese design company. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I think when I started, it wasn't it wasn't something that I was shying away from. To be honest, I was working on motorcycles as well in the beginning. That was like, and I was working on Japanese Hondas, you know, Kawasaki. Is that where the oil? And yeah, the that's where the oil originally came from. Uh, and I was building garments to kind of surround that too. So yeah, I think it started as like, something that I was proud of and wanted to know more about. I think that it was something that I was excited as a Japanese American. I'm half Japanese. So being able to utilize that was, was cool, but I didn't think it was need to be part of our brand. I mean, I wasn't going to put our Japanese kanji on our logo. Uh, not that it was negative. I just didn't think that was part of the brand. And then lo and behold, I started to work. The garments is what sparked really the Japanese side. Cause my mom had, we had some jackets. I played Japanese taiko drums growing up. Um, I went to a Japanese Buddhist church, sure. so I, I wore a lot of hoppy coats and, and kimonos and, and hori jackets growing up that were that were church basically items. And I was like, I thought they were weird when I was younger. And I was like, well, no one wears these. This is like the thing I have to wear at church. Uh, so when I brought those designs in my interpretation for oil number, and then they started to do really well, and people started saying, that's so unique. I love that. I love that you're bringing like your culture. It allowed me to invest more in learning about my history, about where those jackets come from. Um, and just it, it made me more invested as a person, even outside of work, in my culture, which to me was like, wow, that's exciting. I can learn more about my culture, more about my family, and I can maybe bring that to people that want to know more about it as well. And then I started finding out about Japanese furniture even more and being like, wow, this is this needs to be our direction. Yep. This needs to be our definition of like who we are. And now it's like, yeah, all of the things that emit from Japanese furniture and all the things that emit from Japanese clothing, um, we're like a hybrid. We mix a little bit of Scandinavian um, modern design with some Japanese techniques and principles and just attention to detail, natural finishes, respect for the wood. Um, mastery is kind of our goal in this whole thing so yeah i would say yeah it started as not and then it eventually kind of morphed into it but i would say the clothing the apparel side is really what drove drove the brand as a whole being more that japanese kind of modern influence that we that we weren't we didn't have really as a as a foundation for a couple of years
in 2016, I started finding, so a couple years in, I started to look for production. My original plan was to design my own garments, find a garment, send it to a factory here in the States, have them prototype it, like officially make a tech pack and then make my garment. Um, I think this is a time when a lot of companies as well were coming out with like American made small batch manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So Oregon had a big one. Uh, up in Portland had a big facility there that was doing all these different low quantity bespoke level garments. And then New York had some and LA had some. And I was like, amazing. But come to find out, I still was too small for the small. Yeah. I was like so small and naive. I didn't know. So I like anything else I've done, if I can't, if someone wouldn't help me, I'm like, let's just figure it out ourselves. So I started finding I bought a walking foot sewing machine, which is really used for like upholstery and leather. But I was like, hey, this will go through anything. I, I'm working on some leather. I'm doing all this. I'm just still creating. And I started to buy sewing machines. I started to find deals on Craigslist and started to hit up old factories. I'm like, hey, do you have any old machines you're selling? And just started to completely well, be a foot soldier and finding these machines. And I ended up finding a factory in Lexington, Kentucky that used to prototype for Levi's and Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren back in the 60s and 70s. And they just shut down and everything was there. So like commercial grade machines that really haven't changed that much in the past 30 years. And he was like, well, they're about to tear the building down. I'll save the machines, but you got to take everything. So me and a, a guy that makes denim in Greenville, South Carolina, we got two 26 foot box trucks, like Penske trucks, huge ones, drove to Kentucky and spent basically two days um, unloading this, um, this entire like sewing facility. And I'm we're like and I'm I'm loving it. I love the vintage stuff. I'm digging through like old buttons. I'm like, this was made for Levi's. What button is this? And I'm just loving it. I'm and I'm a I, I'm borderline hoarder on some things. So I was going through and finding like zippers that I'm like, oh, this will be amazing. Which I probably still have those zippers sitting up on a shelf. This is also your uh, Japanese side. Yeah, I yeah. Like, I just yeah. love all the history and the stories. And but I ended up getting like 50 machines from there. And then I started, and at that time I had already hired a, uh, one of my employees that's still one of our main employees that, that she does patterning and grading for us, but she knows how to sell and produce as well. So she went to school for that. So I basically was like, well, if I can't figure this out, I know what I want visually. I know how to sew a little bit. I can communicate that. She can make this into like a real life item. So I just bought one machine, then bought another machine, then bought another machine, started with a small collection. And I didn't really have a basis of how I wanted to create it um, if you look at our mission and our vision now as a company, that wasn't originally the plan. I just think we wanted to make garments and wanted to make them as best as possible with like the facilities that we had. And it was made in house out of necessity, not as like a cool, uh, almost like sustainable practice. But now it's become part of our identity to do all those things, you know, made to order is great because we have no waste. We don't really, we don't throw anything away. Nothing ends up on like a sale clearance rack for the most part, unless it's a sample. How do you start a new a new project on the the apparel side like are you i know you kind of mentioned you sort of designed for necessity when you started is that still is that still where ideas come from sometimes sometimes uh we're at a healthy pace now where we don't release we're not like a traditional clothing company traditional clothing companies you release on a schedule you go to market you go to shows you sell wholesale usually you're 18 months out on designs we kind of, we, we always say we're seasonless. We do have items that usually tend to lean towards one season or like you're not wearing shorts in the winter, but we release things whenever we want to release things. So there are some seasons we release less items because I felt like 
I just didn't have time. Or to be honest, it's like, I don't really need to design anything else. All these items, I don't want to have people just waiting for the next drop all the time. Because I feel like then you're kind of like letting your your obsolescence of your old stuff. So we always design stuff with an evergreen model, meaning if we design it, I want it to be part of our collection forever. There's still things we delete because they don't sell well, sure. and that's okay. But the goal is every time we release something, it's something I'm proud of that I would wear and our team would wear. Uh, but there's not really like an exact uh, like equation. I don't do it the same way. I don't sit there and say, we have to design four items. I need to do a jacket, this is how it is. It's usually like, hey, I really like those pants. All right, let's make a pair of pants. Um, because we are of our model of the size of our space, we're able to create items really quickly because we can sew it in-house. Um, if I want to make a jacket today, I could probably go up and we could have one in like two days, like a prototype. So I think it kind of just depends on the time of the year and, and what I'm thinking. But for the most part, I think of an idea, then our creative team comes together and we like make it a product. So it's like, well, what is this going to be used for? What material are they going to use? Um, I think a lot of musicians say, is it the, you know, is it the melody or the lyrics that start first? And for me, it's like, well, it's kind of both. Sometimes it's the, I'll see a textile that's like, this has to be a jacket. Like, this is amazing. Um, we're actually prototyping and working on a, a fabrics contract with an organic company that will basically construct all of our organic cottons. So I'm looking at these fabrics and I don't even know exactly what we're going to make. But I know now I'm like, well, if we have these four fabrics, this will open up my world to like, I can make more things. So it, it kind of varies. Uh, there's not really an exact science to how we create an item, uh, but I do have a way of like, I'll usually look at a material, look at a silhouette. I'll have an idea of like, hey, I want to make like this year we released a long jacket. I wanted to create a winter long jacket that was somewhat traditional, but had my spin on it. All right, let's make that. So then I'm looking for a fabric. So I did the silhouette first, then material to follow. Um, but sometimes I'll see a cool material and then I'm and then I'm mixing them and matching them and it just like works out. Do you look to any sources like film, music, historical references? Like, are there any sort of things like that that you find yourself drawing from on a pretty regular basis? I'm really inspired by culinary. I'm looking at design magazines all the time, whether that's Dwell to Architecture Digest to GQ um, to monocle. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm engulfed in stuff like that. And then I'm also looking at vintage stuff. So like we've designed jackets. Uh, one of my jackets from years ago, is called the Saki chore jacket. And that was designed after my grandfather's hunting jacket. So my, my grandfather always duck hunted and stuff like that. And I, I, when he passed away, there was a jacket that was left there. It was too big for me, but I was like, I love this jacket. So I kind of used, I'll see pictures and go through scrapbooks and I'm like, that's amazing. What is that? I mean, we have ideas all the time. One, one idea I have for the future is like working with a couple artists locally because Nashville has so many great musicians is like, what if I designed a garment with a few musicians and we release like a, a seven or eight uh, per, uh, track vinyl with it? So it's like the vinyl actually comes with the garment and that's like your mood for the garment. There's ideas like that. And because the way we're designed is like, we kind of don't have any rules because we're not uh, solidified by like brand guidelines, we can literally do anything we want and we're not held back. I mean, there's internal rules, <laughs> but at the same time we make those rules so we can bend them, we can break them. Would you say that everything that, I guess one of the principles is that everything is utilitarian because everything you just described yeah. sort of has like a workwear vibe to it, even if the yeah. worker is culinary or musician, like sure. not traditional. I would say, yeah, well, it's workwear and utilitarian because of necessity of what I do because I build things and I'm physically like 
part of the production furniture and sewing. So if it can't keep up with me, which if, if you could see me right now, I have like paint all over my pants. I'm wearing like a, a work shirt with dust all over it. If it can't keep up with me, then it won't be something that I wanna promote. So at the end of the day, we do have some more elegant items. We have wool items and we're working towards some more casual items that you know may not be used in a wood shop. But yeah, there everything has a utilitarian approach. How do you seek or, or do you seek other people's input when you're creating something? Or are you someone who's just like put the blinders on and uh, when it's when it's when I'm done with it, I'll, I'll hand it off to someone to. No, I'm I'm pretty open now. I used to be like that because I, I, mean, I think any any creative person that wants to be a designer wants to do it all and then just say, this is what I want. Create it, you know, um, but I, I've really embraced having the team insight helps them be more invested and it also helps it helps the design because they're giving me input that i'm not seeing we'll go through like three or four renditions of something i'll start with something whether that's a silhouette or a shape or another jacket that i like i'm like hey i love this jacket so i'll sketch something like i want to make this silhouette with this collar what do you guys think like well i don't like that that would look so weird on a girl i think because we're we we sell to both genders you know we're genderless you know and quote unquote too is like we want to be able to make things for everyone so having some of our female employees and me and our other teammates being able to give their insight is invaluable because I'm not looking at it from all their perspectives. So I take advice from them on every garment we create and every piece of furniture. For the furniture, it's a little more internal, but I even ask them like, what do you guys think? The way the light hits this, does this look too warm um, in this house? Does this look weird? And and it, it's, it's great to have input and feedback from our team. And then I even do that with clients. I mean, the clients I trust I'm showing them like new renditions and designs for items that they're not even going to buy, but they're like, oh, I love this and love this. And that's just like having a good relationship with with your clientele and your customers that you can trust them. I mean, we have, uh, there's one girl who comes by that buy, buys some clothing and I have her come by and look at the collections before and just like, hey, what do you think? Try this on. And she might help me modify some of the items because I know that she knows our brand so well and knows the fit that she's going for that she might be able to give me insight on something that we might overlook and miss. On the flip side of that, do you find ever that sometimes input can become too much and yeah, the yeah. end result is maybe not as sharp as, as you would want it to be? Yes, that happens all the time. I'm, I usually get about 80% there, take the insight, make some adjustments. But there's times where I, I'll say, well, you know, this is what we're going to do. And you th that that's like the onus of being an owner sometimes and a founder is, and if you're the chief designer, you need to be able to say, well, this is what we're going to do because this, like, I hear you, I value that opinion. Let's make some adjustments. But at the end of the day, I'm going to try to make a decision that's best for the company and best for our design. And sometimes it doesn't mean I take every opinion, but I hear every opinion. And I think that, yes, if you, if you just do make every change based off of every other person that has an input, I think you'll probably end up with a garment that's not its best version. And what about ideas that, that don't end up working out? I mean, how, how has, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, how has failure kind of been a part of your story? Uh, I, in the clothing specifically, there were moments where I thought that we had to create certain items within our collection because other brands that we look up to are doing that. So if this company had a, had a work jacket, I'm like, we have to have a work jacket like this in our collection because everyone else that we want to be like or be in the talk with is doing that. We have to have our own version of that. Um, I think you still see that with brands. Like one will have this one jacket, so the seven other brands all have to have something similar. That has not worked out for us because of our model, because of how we do things, because it takes a lot longer for us to 
actually create garments in general, we need to be super thoughtful and stick to it. So being disciplined is huge because yeah, we, we tried to create this one jacket that was like an anorak. It was a half zip, with a, and I think it was before it's time. It'd be funny now we have, we have some of them here and they're, they're selling now. People will come in like, what's that? And they'll want to buy it in the studio. Like that came out three years ago and it was like, it was before it's time. So yeah. I, and then on the furniture side is like, I think working with me getting caught up in the fact of wanting to work with big brands wasn't all the glamour. It's sometimes it's actually you you find more happiness and more success internally creatively is working with people that will value your furniture versus big companies that you think will, will value it and pay you a lot of money. So yeah, I think I think those are probably just some of the mistakes that I made in the beginning that I will I learned from and won't do again. Have you had to say no to a lot of projects and and especially with keeping the slow fashion ethos? Have you had to say no to like the urban outfitters of the world? Or has has anyone like that kind of come knocking and said we want you to do something yeah, we, fast and big? Yeah, we we we've had a, a lot of people think we just do production. So like they think we're like a production warehouse. So we've had a lot of people like, "Hey, can you make me a hundred jackets?" And we're like, "Well, that's not really what we do." Mm-hmm. Uh, so I turn on stuff. At, I mean, every week, all the time. Um, and then sitting on the furniture at both sides is people, people just think we wanted, they want us to do this and this and this. And I kind of walk them through how we do all of our projects, um, from a client perspective, like, Hey, I want to meet, I want to hear about your concept. I want to know what you're doing. I want to know about your house. What are you guys doing? How big is your family? What are their names? Like, I want to know all that stuff. And if you don't meet that criteria, I say no. Um, and that's, that's just because that's the way we, that's our system. That's our equation for creating something for a house or working with someone. That's why people come to us is we're invested and want to actually work with them from a personal perspective. And they can say they know the artist, they know the fact that this table was made or this garment was made by somebody. So like we have people right now that buy two sizes and then that's a common thing I think for our generation is like buy both sizes and return the one you don't want. So when we get an order like that, it looks like that. I'll email the person to say, hey, or one of our customer service reps will will email will email someone and say, hey, just want to make sure we have a like we can help you with sizing recommendations. We make these all made to order. So like we don't have one just sitting on a shelf. So if we can try to help you on the front end and nail the fit you're looking for, we can do that. We can still do a return if it doesn't fit great, but let's try to nail it on the first round. So we kind of go above and beyond on the customer service side to to kind of do that instead of the the alternate. Yep. How has being in Nashville from a customer perspective, informed your, your work. People think the South, they don't think of like modern Japanese style, Danish maybe inspired furniture. They think you're probably doing barn wood reclaimed, you know, more like the Southern modern, um, you know, like Chip and Joanna Gaines style furniture, sure. to be honest. And I think that that's not at all who we are. I think the reason why we stayed here is because we love, we love the city, we love the people, and we also love the creative community. And I think that there are a lot of people that live here that still, but we sell all over the world I and mean, we've sent furniture overseas. Um, but for the most part, a lot of our clientele are still here in town. It's kind of crazy. You don't, I didn't think they were here in the beginning and it made me kind of nervous, but there's plenty of people here that want your stuff uh, from that want that design. So I think because we're slow, like slow build design process and focus on the details, we don't need to make thousands of items a year. We just need to make a handful of really, really good, amazing pieces and focus on the, the art and the creativity and the perfection side of things. And I think that that ends up just leading to more customers, mm-hmm. um, whether that's local or you know all over the country. Do you think there's also been a paradigm shift in terms of people being more attuned to sort of how 
their clothing or their furniture is made, sort of who they're buying from. And also, I think because of social media, there's sort of this new social currency to like knowing Ethan and knowing that Ethan made your jacket versus just buying something from Carhartt. Yeah, I think customers really do care. I think that's part of their value uh, is telling like telling their friends and being like they're bragging about the fact that it's on lumber because Holly made it. It's upstairs or Emily made it or Ethan helped make it or design it. I think that's what's exciting is like, hey, I'm supporting my friend that I also love his clothes and this was made here. And, you know, it's those like micro economies. And I think people are really excited about that. And then, then it starts to, you know, snowball out. So, yeah, I think – and then furniture side too, I think I'm seeing that now catch up more. I think people are still buying from the huge box stores. I mean, I've bought from Ikea. I still have stuff from there here and there. But at the same time, I think people now are like, let's maybe buy one. It's like the mentality that our parents didn't – my parents at least have the same dining room table they got when they were married. Like that's yeah, before it was cool, but they knew the guy who made it. I think there are a lot of parents, you know, that are in their mid to late fifties and sixties that all, they invested in nice things because nice things were made back then. Like, you know, they don't make them like they used to. I think that's, that was a time of like really high made, high quality made stuff instead of designed obsolescence or where things break. <laughs> cause now people are building furniture to have it break in five years. Cause they know it's going to be out of trend. So just make it and then buy it again, make it and buy it again versus we're trying to go to that old mentality of like, let's make something that will last generations. I want people to fight over those things. So when you invest in that, I even say that to clients all the time in meetings, like, well, I want you to buy this and basically have it hurt once. So it's expensive, but if you think about buying five tables over the next 10 years or 20 tables over the, your lifetime, what, how much does that cost versus this table could, will last you as long as you want to keep it. It, it's solid wood. So, I mean, it's really, if it breaks, let us know, we'll fix it. Yeah. I would rather buy less and have higher quality things. Yeah. I think that that's a resurgence that is maybe coming back and being educated more. And then being socially responsible too is like letting, that we pay our, our, our sewers, the industry standard almost double. So it's like, wow, that's the industry standard, even in the United States. And it's like, well, I want to be able to have my employees not feel like this is a, a stepping stone job. I want them to have a career here. So I think being able to support that side of things too is, is just as important for me. And I think that I'm trying to educate that to customers. Yeah. Like when you're buying this, you're also paying someone that is loving what they do. It's a trade and you're valuing it just as much as, as, much as you love that jacket. Speaking of, of being an employer, have you had the experience yet of one of your employees saying, you know, I kind of want to start my own thing now? During COVID, we had we had an employee that was on the furniture side that was great. We're still friends with him. Um, and he started his own thing. I think that it's, it, you kind of know that when you own a business like this, a creative business of all kinds, I mean, whether you're a graphic design studio or do furniture or do clothing, whenever you're having creative people, they see how it's working. Like you're going to have people that start their own thing. So yeah, that happens all the time. I think uh, there's like a, a quote, I feel like other woodworkers say like, I'm just basically training people to run their own business. I don't hand people opportunities very often and very quickly. I kind of let us take our time and teach them to be a part of like our company culture. Uh, and that's why we're so small. I was like, I don't really want to be big. Yeah. I want to be bespoke. I want to be, be boutique forever. Like my goal is to get to 10 people and then like, that's good. Because I feel like if I have more than that, I have to manage all those people. And at that point, I'm not building anything. I'm not making anything. I'm not the artist. I'm not hands-on anymore. And that's that's what I don't want to get rid of. Yeah. So I think that's going to be a hard balance for me in the next five to 10 years is like, where do we cap it? And 
really is like as long as my employees are all making what they want to make and we're happy and we're making things that we're proud of, then we're good. Yeah. That's our company's success. You know, that that's that's what I think is like having a business that operates and makes money for our employees and us and is able to make amazing artistry pieces. That's our goal. And if we can do check all those boxes, it's not like making this and raising a fund round and selling and, you know, doing all this other stuff. It's like, we just want to create a place that people want to work. That's exciting. That creates really cool artistry pieces. If you do that, great. So we have this room and this room. They're about the same size. That's our finishing room for the most part. So this is roughly 18 square feet. We're going to have 5,000 at our new space. Wow. So like huge. So we're sitting here in a two-story building. That is your workshop for the furniture side. You sort of have a showroom and, and the the textile side upstairs yeah all these other cool makers are in this space as well from yeah. from nashville and in six months or a year from now this is going to look totally different yeah for for us definitely this is the building called the hill uh it was founded by a, a lighting company here in town called southern lights electric and a screen printing shop that our friends called grand palace we were being pushed out of our old shop where soho house nashville is going and they purchased it like four years ago and we kind of saw that it was going to be developed. So we were looking for a new space. We found this space, 20,000 square feet and said, okay, this is how we're going to save money is run a big warehouse. And then we can find, we know the creative people around town. Let's find people we like and we'll sublease to them. Um, we won't charge them any more money than we're getting charged basically. And create like this environment of like, it's not co-working, but we share a building. During COVID, um, we, we started to look for land and look for a place to build. We don't own this building. We lease this building. And about 25 minutes outside the city in West Nashville, we found a, a piece of property that had commercial zoning that we we're able to construct our own building. So that'll be like the the oil and lumber, you know, Nakashima wannabe compound. Uh, the, the dream is to have, um, we're going to have our production all out there, our studio all out there. And long term is to have actual like working portfolio pieces, meaning structures like building small Japanese style um, cabins that people can stay in and become immersed in like the oil lumber vision. I think that's hard to, to tell people. You ask like, what is exciting? What are projects you finished wholly that are like you're excited about? I'm like, well, there's maybe a handful. I'm proud of everything, but stuff if you could do from the ground up, there's very few you get that opportunity. So I've wanted to do that for maybe not a house for a client, but show them like if I could have the reins to everything, this is what this would look like. And being able to share that with customers have, you know, whether it's staycations or people from New York coming down that want to view our work or want to just come stay in Nashville would be a little out of the city, but go into the city at night. It's like, come stay at this place. Come see what we're all about doing classes. We want to do like woodworking yeah. classes or sewing classes or dye classes. Stay at the cabin, walk down the hill and come dye some stuff. We'll, we're actually going to be, my wife and I and our son are going to be living on the property. There's an old cabin we're going to be living in. I'm going to build and design our house, work on some cabins. Um, and then uh, just be working out there. As someone who is steeped in certain traditions, what's important for you to carry through from traditional techniques versus where do you want to put your own spin on things? Yeah, I mean, I, I we're not really like, I would say more in garments. It's really hard to be super traditional with Japanese garments because a lot of things that I do that make my own spin on things is like not traditional, like adding pockets to things. Uh, or adding a certain design element that wouldn't be traditional. So I, I want to pay like homage to the the garment or the piece of furniture from like a looks perspective. But furniture is like free game. You actually want to be more creative. You don't you don't want to design something like someone else. 
um, clothing, you definitely don't want to copy, but you want to be able to be respectful of the way it was made. If you're going to call it a certain item, like a, a certain type of kimono, you want to be like, it's this one because of this, but this is my take on it. Mm -hmm. So I think we're not trying to recreate the wheel on everything. We obviously have inspiration. We use uh, people like George Nakashima, famous mid-century designers um, over the years, and then put our spin. But sometimes I'm trying to like blend different design elements. So there's nothing that I'm, is off the table. I don't have a lot of rules um, from a design perspective because I feel like having confines makes the maybe won't let the item be what it should be or allows me to kind of be closed-minded. So there's not a lot of things I'm like we have to be super traditional about this. You know, we, we can't do this. I think that we kind of just make and design stuff the way we want. We obviously take into account all of those those design elements, but we just like to make stuff that is our interpretation of something or something that we feel like is just unique and different on its own. And what would you say are principles that every item shares? Utilitarianism, I would say uh, the quality of like woodworking wise is like, it's gotta last. Like I don't wanna build furniture out of just like laminated, uh, really like chipboard. I'll never make anything out of that. Mm -hmm. Everything that, that we make, it's predominantly like even plywood. I'm like, well, maybe for certain things where it needs to be. But for the most part, like I like to build hardwood, high end designed items that are going to last generations. If it's not going to do that, I don't want to build it. And then on the garment side is really just making sure like we're trying to design also garments that are all sustainable. So we try to do everything we can. And, and how we do that is like natural based fibers, recycled fibers and organic whenever possible. And we want to design things that fit everyone. You know, we want to be able to make garments for whoever wants to wear them. If it hits all those boxes and furniture wise is the same thing as like anyone needs to be able to use it and it needs to be able to last generations. Those are some of our foundational pieces that we won't even look at it if it doesn't hit those just because it, it, it's not hitting our like core belief as a company. see photos from our visit to Ethan's studio on our Instagram account. Just search for Folktales Podcast. To learn more about Oil & Lumber, visit oilandlumber.com and follow them on Instagram. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a rating. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.